so this uh, talk grew out of uh, research that I did uh, as an MA student at uh, York when I took a course on uh, film festivals that was taught by uh, Janine Marcheseau. For some reason, I can't pronounce her name right now. I guess I'm slightly nervous. Um, but anyway, uh, the idea was that her Janine's idea at the, that was at the end of the uh, semester, she would take all the papers that were written and she would put them on a website and anybody who wanted to see them could, but probably no one would. Uh, and then after she graded all the papers, she sent out an email saying, you know what, I'm going to change my mind. Um, so um, basically what, oh, I'm, am I still audible? My computer is doing something funny with the sound. Uh, so I hopefully... Okay, still audible, great. So um, what happened was, uh, you know, at the end of the semester, after she graded all the papers, she said uh, some of the papers were so good that uh, they should be submitted to peer review journals and be published. And, but she didn't say whose papers should be published, at least not publicly or not to me anyway. Maybe she sent out some email saying like, your paper's good, but she didn't say anything to me. And I was in this kind of uh, ambiguous position of not knowing uh, whether my paper was any good or not. And uh, so rather than just ask her, I decided, well, why don't I send it off to a peer review journal and see if it is publishable? And there was, I, I, in my mind, there was like this urgency that I had to publish because I had published like soon because I did all my research in the fall of 2017 uh, at the Real Asian Film Festival. And I felt like if I didn't get this out, like within a year, all the information would be out of date and it would just be this unpublishable anachronistic essay that nobody was interested in. So the weird thing is that I, I submitted it to Asian cinema and then it, I didn't actually get a response until like January, 2019. So already kind of beyond the cell, what I considered the cell date for this uh, paper and, um, and they accepted it. And then, uh, and then, you know, I go through the long process of, you know, revising and checking proofs and then it, you know, it only was published middle of last year. And I was like, oh, thank God that's over. I never have to think about this again. And then a few weeks ago, I got this, you know, very nice email from uh, Dr. Shanmuganathan saying, hey, why don't you give this talk? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. Um, but I think there should be kind of, you know, an asterisk next to uh, a lot of what I'm saying that, you know, it just might be out of date. And, and there's at least one point where I know that it is a little bit out of date, uh, but um, I'll get into that later. Okay, that took probably too long. Uh, so the introduction, um, so Real Asian, it's, uh, it was founded in 1997, it's held every year in Toronto. And according to the festival's website, it's the largest pan-Asian uh, film festival in Canada. There are others, but this is kind of the, the big one in Canada, at least in Canada. And then there are others in you know, the United States and San Francisco, New York and other places. Uh, and the, the program selections, because it's mostly films from East Asia, they, it kind of implies this uh, hierarchy of Asian societies and diasporas. Uh, and in addition to its programming selections, both not only its program selections, but also the kind of printed materials that the festival distributes, like program guides and other things, uh, it tends to locate an authentic, uh, you know, oriental essence in the persistence of uh, pre-industrial cultural practices that are supposedly unchanging and therefore really have no future. Um, and so thinking about the festival as a, a, a kind of discourse, it kind of propounds this idea of Asianness, but um, the spectators of the festival aren't um, passive. They aren't just kind of, you know, passively accepting this uh, subject position that's kind of meted out by an all powerful discourse. Actually, they're 
actively performing uh, divergent roles in the space of the festival and online. And so uh, racialized Asian spectators uh, basically uh, serve to legitimize the festival as a kind of community event. Uh, you know, it's saying, you know, like here's Asia, here are Asian people who enjoy these films. Uh, and then, uh, but also at the same time, the, the festival needs to appeal to um, white spectators who are really there to kind of validate the film's, uh, you know, artistic merit, that they're not just films for a kind of niche Asian audience. So it's this kind of uh, contradictory uh, festival in a lot of ways. So um, thinking about uh, the festival's programming selections, um, the festival started out, uh, as I said, in the late 1990s, and uh, the first year it was just uh, North American films uh, by directors of Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, and Korean heritage. So uh, on the slide here, you can see uh, an image from a film called uh, Shopping with Fangs. That was uh, the first film directed by Justin Lin, who went on to direct uh, Better Luck Tomorrow, which is a kind of classic Asian American film, and uh, and then also uh, one of the Fast and the Furious sequels, Tokyo Drift. So he, he eventually became a much more commercial filmmaker after starting out as a kind of indie filmmaker. And what happened with uh, Real Asian uh, is that there was this kind of gradual kind of mission creep where they started out as just, you know, North American films by Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, and Korean ethnic filmmakers, and then they kind of uh, expanded outwards. And so the, the second year they had films from Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, and South Korea, not Taiwan. Taiwan would be later. Uh, and then uh, also expanding out uh, over the next couple of years uh, into uh, Southeast Asia increasingly. And they had like spotlight programs, different years for uh, particular national cinemas. Like one year it was Malaysian cinema, another year it was Thai cinema. Uh, but it wasn't really until 2013 uh, that they actually started screening films from South Asia, which is kind of an interesting omission, especially when you consider that India is one of the largest film producing countries in the world or produces the most, one of the countries that produces the most number of films, I should say. Uh, and from 2015, they've uh, screened a, a, a handful of films from uh, Afghan Canadian filmmakers, which uh, seems to indicate that as far as the festival is concerned, the kind of um, outermost frontier of Oriental culture is Afghanistan and Central Asia and the Middle East don't really count as, uh, as uh, Asian cinema. Uh, and But despite this kind of uh, opening up of the festival to other uh, national cinemas, other diaspora communities, uh, the overwhelming emphasis remains on uh, East Asian cinema and uh, diasporic East Asian filmmakers, uh, rather than, you know, being a kind of equitable distribution of, you know, Asian cinema. Uh, and so the year that I attended the festival, they were about... Um, 17 feature films. This doesn't include uh, short films, uh, but there were 17 features. Uh, six of these were Chinese, and it's a very diplomatic breakdown. Uh, two from mainland China, two from Hong Kong, and two from Taiwan. Uh, the politics of screening Chinese films or Chinese cinemas uh, at Asian film festivals might be an interesting topic for research in another paper. Uh, I didn't really get into that in this paper, but you know, maybe one day. I'll turn to that. Uh, then four from Japan. So we're already talking more than half of the films, the feature films that were screened at the festival uh, in 2017 were from either China or Japan, uh, including the opening night film, which was a Japanese film, uh, Dear Etranger by uh, Mishima Yukiko is the director, uh, which you can see on the slide there. 
there were two from India, but I'm kind of putting an asterisk next to one of the Indian films because it was directed by a German guy. Uh, there were two films from the Philippines, uh, one from Thailand, uh, and then there were three Canadian films, and that breaks down to uh, one by a Filipino-Canadian filmmaker, one by an ethnic Korean filmmaker, one by a Vietnamese-Canadian, and then one film from the U.S. by an ethnic Korean filmmaker. So overwhelmingly, the emphasis is on East Asia and then kind of um, secondarily uh, Southeast Asia. And then there's just like a little bit of, of, of uh, sorry, first East Asia, second Southeast Asia, and then kind of just a little bit of uh, South Asia. Uh, I'm putting kind of an asterisk next to this claim because uh, the 2020 festival, uh, you know, during COVID, it was a smaller festival. They screened fewer films, but the films had a more kind of um, equitable distribution um, and actually uh, expanded a little bit in terms of uh, one of the films was a uh, Japanese Kazakh co-production, which is the first time that uh, I, I believe that a, a film from Kazakhstan was shown at Real Asian. Uh, so, and the first film, I think, from any uh, Central Asian country. Of course, Central Asia doesn't produce that many films. Uh, and whether, so the 2021 lineup hasn't been announced yet. So whether this is like, you know, a, a real change in the orientation of the festival or whether it was just this one year because of COVID and they couldn't, you know, there weren't so many films being made and they couldn't show so many films. I, I don't know yet. It's kind of, you know, it's something that remains to be seen. Uh, and so uh, in a 2007 conversation with uh, Anita Lee, who's one of the uh, co-founders of Real Asian, uh, Cameron Bailey basically kind of asked her just straight up, like, so why did the festival define the Asian in Real Asian as East Asian and not a kind of broader uh, definition? And her response uh, was... Uh, Another thing that I learned from the culture wars of the 1990s was how difficult it was to find common ground between Asian communities. So I wanted to define as small and specific a cultural space as possible. The key people of real Asian were all East, of East Asian descent. So we decided to do, we decided we should do what we knew best. One year program act, programmer actually wanted to list all the countries that were included in our definition and it became uh, impossible to draw the line. So it's, it's kind of an interesting quote here, because on the one hand, she's saying, um, yeah, you know, we just wanted to kind of uh, have this kind of small focused festival. You know, we were East Asian people. We thought we should, you know, stick to that. Uh, but they still took the name Real Asian. They took this very big name to, for a festival that's actually, you know, in its original conception was kind of quite uh, geographically focused. And unfortunately, in, in this conversation with Cameron Bailey, it's never kind of picked up, well, why didn't you just call the festival real East Asian or real, you know, uh, East and Southeast Asian, why real Asian, why this, you know, huge swath of land that you're trying to kind of lay claim to representing. And, uh, you know, and if you go on the festival's website, there's actually no um, explicit definition of Asian cinema or culture. So not in the, on the website, not on the program guide, not any, not in any of the kind of uh, texts that the festival puts out. Is there any kind of you know, firm definition of this is what uh, Asia is and this is what Asian cinema and culture is. Uh, so it, it's kind of left deliberately, uh, I mean, maybe not deliberately vague, but um, it, it's in the festival's interest in a way to be vague because all film festivals have this um, institutional pressure to expand indefinitely, to show more films at more venues over a greater number of days because like 
most festivals in Canada, um, Real Asian depends on corporate sponsorship for its survival. And, 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 and what the festival delivers to its corporate uh, sponsors is eyeballs. It, it's, it's part of the attention economy that, you know, if you can uh, deliver, you know, eyeballs, you have a, a valuable festival as far as corporate sponsors are concerned. Uh, and uh, of course, in, you know, in Canada, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the East Asian community in Toronto, there's, you know, there's a lot of money. So this is a, a valuable uh, demographic to target. Uh, and if you go on their website, uh, there's a, a section about uh, advertising rates and they talk and they kind of give a breakdown of how the uh, audience self-identifies mostly as uh, Chinese. And uh, so that, that information is very valuable to, um, to corporate sponsors who are thinking about, you know, spending money on this festival to kind of get uh, the attention of the people who are going to the festival. And the thing about Real Asian is it's quite a long festival. Um, so in, in the, the original Real Asian was like quite short. It was like, it was two days. Uh, in, in 2017, when I attended the festival, it was 10 days, which is, um, it's not the longest festival in Toronto. Uh, I think uh, TIFF is like a week and a half. And that's like one of the biggest film festivals in the world, obviously. Uh, Real Asian is 10 days, which is quite long. Um, you know, a comparable uh, festival would be Imaginative, which uh, screens films by indigenous filmmakers. And that only lasts, uh, I think, like uh, six days. So it's a relatively, uh, it's still quite, you know, uh, that's like a kind of like a, a median, you know, between like a very short, like two day festival and, you know, TIFF six is kind of, you know, somewhere in the middle uh, Real Asian kind of tends towards uh, one of being one of the longer festivals. And so that's part of its appeal to its corporate sponsors is that it can deliver more eyeballs. Uh, and it, it's funny that the, you know, in the, it, as early as, 1999, the festival's program guide was already boasting that Real Asia has become a high-profile event that has grown from its humble roots way back in 1997. That is, you know, two years ago. So almost like immediately after the festival starts, there's this kind of push to grow the festival, to make it more attractive to uh, corporate sponsors. And even if it hasn't grown, we're just going to say that it's grown, uh, you know, because I think at, at this point it was still only a four-day festival, which is, uh, you know, kind of on, on the shorter side, but they're already kind of Trying, they're already kind of pushing this narrative of like we're, we're a big festival now like we're ready to sit at the grown-up table and uh part of this and, and so you know as i mentioned earlier there wasn't really uh the festival didn't show any uh, south asian films until 2013 and there are probably a lot of different reasons for this uh and, and one of them is that uh there are already two film festivals in toronto that screen south asian films one of them is tiff because it has a, a global um, scope and the other is uh, IFSA Toronto, the International Film Festival of South Asia, uh, which is just exclusively uh, South Asian films. And so the festivals are kind of competing for uh, South Asian films. Uh, and so Real Asian didn't really get into that scrabble or into that scramble until 2013, once it had kind of achieved a certain mass that would make it attractive also to you know, South Asian filmmakers to have their work shown at Real Asian rather than uh, at IFSA Toronto, assuming that the film wasn't, you know, uh, good enough or prestigious enough to get into TIFF, which is still the, the major festival in Toronto. And uh, what 
the festival, the reason the festival needs to show at least, you know, some South Asian films is basically uh, in order to kind of keep, uh, you know, keep the name real Asian because it's just, it, you know, it became like too strange that, you know, you had the largest pan-Asian festival in Canada, but there's this huge section of Asia that just wasn't being represented at all. So they need to show at least some Asian film or South Asian films to kind of, you know, maintain the name real Asian without people kind of going like, hmm? but that, that's not really their focus. And uh, again, I mentioned earlier that, that, you know, the breakdown of um, the audience that they, uh, that they give on their website, it, it's mostly people from, uh, you know, of, of East Asian heritage. So the audience is predominantly East Asian, the films are predominantly East Asian, and there's just this kind of like tokenistic inclusion of um, South Asian cinema, but there's not really, you know, if you go to the screens, you don't actually see that many South Asian people. So it's not really a festival that has strong ties to the, the South Asian community in the way that it has ties with the East Asian community, uh, which is really its main focus. Um, and so the kind of the implication of this uh, in terms of the festival's discourse is that the festival basically posits uh, the Orient as a series of concentric circles where you have East Asians in the center as like the most Asian Asians. And then at one remove, you have Southeast Asians. And then kind of at the outer periphery, you have uh, South Asia, including Afghanistan, and then Central Asia and the Middle East, it's kind of like vast permanent darkness. That's really neither Asia nor Europe. Uh, and so that's kind of how the, the festival's discourse kind of, you know, give this image of what is Asia and what, what, what is Asian-ness. Uh, and since the, you know, the project of the festival as a identity-based festival is to um, basically make a, a particular community, in this case, the Asian community, uh, make it visible to itself and to the general public, uh, at least for the period that the festival exists, um, it really requires a, a set of images and ideas representing uh, orientalness. And so th there's a certain amount of uh, self-orientalization involved in the, uh, in the festival. And uh, in particular, it, it posits basically a kind of uh, binary opposition of unchanging oriental traditions and the encroachments of Western modernity. So the idea is that, you know, uh, you know, you have these kind of uh, pre-industrial uh, Chinese, or not just Chinese, but East Asian and kind of Southeast Asian and just, you know, oriental traditions that um, are, you know, kind of, that are kind of fixed and they're unchanging and they, they've kind of been the same, you know, since time immemorial. And, uh, they are kind of constantly under threat from the kind of encroachments of Western modernity, which have this kind of um, homogenizing effect on Asian societies. And this is evident uh, in a lot of the films that are presented, but also in the festival's own uh, discourses. So, um, you know, program guides, uh, press releases, and other documents put out by the, uh, by the festival. I give a couple examples in the, uh, the article that uh, I wrote on this subject. Uh, but I'll just give one here, which is the cover of the 2008 uh, program guide. And uh, so what you basically see here is a kimono clad sumo wrestler standing on a subway train surrounded by fashionable young people. And of course the thing that's, I mean, there are a couple of ways you could read this image, but of course the, the main thing that kind of stands out right away is this uh, absolute juxtaposition of, um, you know, quote unquote traditional Asian culture uh, in this case, specifically Japanese, and the kind of signifiers of modernity, so mass transit and consumer culture. And 
you know, and you can read this image in a lot, this juxtaposition in a lot of different ways, uh, but within the kind of overall context of the festival as uh, a discourse, its uh, meaning is kind of uh, predetermined as showing, uh, you know, this, you know, this kind of um, erasure of, of Asian distinctiveness that is kind of gradually happening as a result of uh, modernity, basically, which is seen as this kind of uh, imported thing, because the uh, traditional Asian uh, pr cultural practices are kind of uh, they're kind of located specifically in the past. And so this guy, not only does he kind of stand out immediately because he's wearing, you know, uh, clothes that are not contemporary, uh, but also, you know, he's in a way he's kind of surrounded. So even though he's a sumo wrestler, he kind, you know, kind of looks a little bit nervous, like almost like he's under threat, like these like, you know, young shoppers are like kind of surrounding him like a gang almost. Uh, and of course, um, you know, and the thing is, uh, the, other, the other thing to point out is that you wouldn't know that this is Japan if it wasn't for the sumo wrestler. If you just kind of mentally, you know, edit him out of the picture, you know, this could be Shanghai, this could be Hong Kong, this could be Seoul, it could be any East, you know, it could be even Manila, you know, it could be any uh, East or Southeast Asian uh, city. It could even be, okay, it could be New York, it could be Toronto, because you know, we have Asian people here too. So, um, so the, you know, so if the festival needs to represent Asian-ness, they need some, uh, you know, images that kind of, that really immediately when you look at them, like say like, ah, that's Asia. And so there's this kind of anxiety in the festival, both in its uh, printed materials and in a lot of the films that are shown at the festival uh, about the distinctiveness of Asian societies being kind of erased by this kind of, um, uh, increasing embrace of uh, Western modernity. So one of the films screened in 2017 was a, a short documentary called Nests of Gold, which is about uh, bird's nest soup, which is a delicacy in Hong Kong that is, you know, increasingly not popular with young people. And uh, in the, in the documentary, there are all these interview subjects who are kind of bemoaning that, you know, young people aren't interested in this uh, traditional uh, quintessentially Hong Kong uh, delicacy and that the city is kind of losing its identity to uh, encroaching Western modernity, which is just kind of, you know, flattening things out. And so there's in a way a kind of denial of coevalness to use Johannes Fabian's terms uh, that uh, basically, you know, Asian culture exists in the past. And to the extent that one is Asian or one is, you know, authentically Asian, one is not really modern. And so the young people surrounding the sumo wrestler, they're not really, you know, they're not true Asians because they're, they're embracing the West. So that's kind of how the discourse, uh, the discourse of the festival kind of uh, situates this image or kind of fixes its meaning. And of course, the other thing to remember is that, you know, really it's not just a discourse. It's not just, you know, a screening of films. It's also a kind of community, it's, it's to make the community uh, visible. And so the, uh, the slogan for the festival in 2017, which was written in like big capital letters on the program guide, and they had a, you know, and before you, the film started, there was like a slide on the screen that said, you know, had the same message represent on and off the screen. So the idea is that we're not just looking at films about Asian people, but, you know, Asian people are going to the films and to the events to, you know, to represent themselves as a community. And uh, it's obviously very important for the festival to attract um, racially marked Asian spectators because uh, it would be kind of weird if it was an Asian film festival and then not many Asian people showed up. So they need to kind of, you know, try to try to engage 
uh, a kind of imagined Asian community in Toronto uh, by kind of, you know, showing films that would uh, appeal to them. And so what happened is, you know, the festival in 1997, their explicit commitment in the, in the program guide was to auteur works independently produced and speaking an original and stimulating voice. Uh, but just as the director, Justin Lin, kind of decided to, you know, go Hollywood after, you know, making a couple indie films, also Real Asian, there was this kind of drift away from that original commitment to uh, independent cinema towards uh, more commercially oriented films. But at the same time, uh, in terms of their subject matter, we're still, um, you know, we're still, still culturally specific enough that they seem kind of distinct from, you know, uh, non-Asian uh, or from, uh, you know, let's say like, you know, European and American films uh, about white people. So you have this very, so in the films, you have this very kind of culturally specific subject matter, uh, but the form of the films tends not to be, uh, you know, overly demanding. It's uh, quite a, uh, you know, in terms of the films it shows, it, it, the festival tends to be relatively mainstream. So this isn't a festival where you're going to see the new film by Love Diaz because uh, his films are just, you know, uh, beyond the pale of most film goers. And so the only people, so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Tiff had a screening of Evolution of a Filipino Family, which is 11 and a half hours uh, long. And uh, I was probably the most Asian person. No, I think I, I, I remember seeing one or two other, you know, Asian people, but it was mostly white people who turned up for it, like hardcore cinephiles, you know, guys with beards and ponytails, uh, that kind of set of people. Uh, so to, to get the, you know, the Asian community more broadly, not just, you know, the handful of Asian hardcore cinephiles, they, they have to kind of, uh, you know, they, they don't make too many, uh, too much uh, demands on the spectators' um, cognitive abilities. They're, they're quite accessible films, generally. Uh, so I'll show you a, a clip from one film that was screened at Real Asian in uh, 2017, which is actually a really delightful film called uh, Teichi Battle of Supreme High. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, I could, the only clip I could find online was a Spanish trailer. So um, basically, if you, if you don't speak Japanese or um, Spanish, it's a high school comedy. Uh, it's basically satirizing um, Japanese politics by you know, setting the story in, a, in a, an elite high school in Tokyo in the 1970s. And it's about these uh, basically amoral dandies who, um, you know, are absolutely ruthless in, uh, you know, their uh, campaign for student council president because they see it as, uh, you know, their ticket towards not only becoming the prime minister, but then later like ruling his own empire. And so it's based on a, a manga. It's a very kind of uh, accessible commercial film and just what even if you don't speak Spanish or Japanese just watching the uh, trailer you should get a, a sense at least of the the film's uh, tone and its style which is quite um, comic and uh, delightful and and so it's not really a film that you know if you show it to most audiences they're going to be like huh? it's, it, you know it's, it's like it's a very like it's like a crowd pleasing kind of film uh, so I'll just oh first I have to share my audio so you can hear the Japanese dialogue it's only being select share something share computer audio okay so um if, if nothing else at least you get, get a sense of how pretty the boys are in this movie so it, it's it's a film with quite a lot of um commercial appeal you might say um but at the same time of course the festival can't you know can't go too far in the other direction and just be like you know showing purely commercial movies it has to kind of maintain a certain amount of um artistic street cred 
uh, in order to, um, you know, to remain viable as a, you know, as a film festival. And so the festival does kind of keep uh, one foot in the art house um, in terms of showing, you know, movies that are maybe not as uh, accessible as uh, Teiji, Battle of Supreme High. Um, and, you know, and this was reflected also in the, uh, the awards that the festival uh, gave out, uh, which of course exists to generate um, cultural capital uh, as is the case with any film festival. Uh, you know, you take films that are often not very commercial, they, they play at a festival and just being an official selection of a certain film festival kind of boosts the profile of a film. Uh, and then of course there are the awards. And then the idea is that the films take that kind of um, cultural capital that they acquire at film festivals. And then it kind of feeds back into uh, a kind of commercial appeal for when the films go into general release. And so the film that uh, won the uh, award for best feature film in 2017 uh, was a, a Filipino film called Women of the Weeping River, um, which is um, not uh, like, you know, as I mentioned Lob Diaz earlier, this is not as demanding as a Lob Diaz film, but it's still uh, very much, you know, a film in a kind of established festival film style with, you know, long takes, kind of contemplative narrative, um, not much happens in the film. Uh, and of course, if you look at the credits, uh, the film was supported by institutions associated with different film festivals. So the Sundance Institute, uh, the Asian Cinema Fund, which is associated with the Busan International Film Festival and the Hubert Balls Fund, which is associated with Rotterdam. So this is a film that was basically like a bunch of film festivals got together in a lab and they produced a film that would be appropriate for film festivals. Uh, so it's, you know, it's almost like a kind of textbook example of, you know, if you, if you wanted to know what festivals, what, you know, quote unquote festival cinema was, you would wind up with this movie because it's just been genetically engineered to uh, play at festivals and pick up awards, uh, even though it's not really uh, a great example of the, the genre. It's not, uh, it's very, not a very inspired example of it. Um, and you know, it's basically a film with quite a static narrative. So it's about um, these two families in rural Mindanao and uh, long before even the film starts, these families have had this kind of ongoing uh, blood feud. And at the end of the film, there's no sense that this feud is going to be resolved at any time in the future. So actually, you know, there, there's, no, there's no real arc to the narrative. It's just, you know, most of the characters are alive at the beginning and then at the end, most of them are dead, but they're still gonna keep, the ones who are surviving are just gonna keep fighting with each other. And so uh, basically there are not a lot of um, signifiers to tell you when the film is actually set. Uh, it, so the characters almost seem to exist kind of out of time in a way. Uh, the, it's about so the two families, one is Muslim, one is Catholic. The uh, Muslim family seems to live in the backwoods. They don't have access to electricity or running water. Uh, the Catholic family is somewhat more modern because the uh, family matriarch enjoys listening to like scratchy jazz records, but none of them are like, neither of them is completely contemporary. And it's only um, towards the end of the film that we actually find out that the film is set basically in the present or in the, in the 20 teens. Uh, and so there's this kind of, uh, again, what going back to Johannes Fabian, this kind of denial of coevalness. There's this idea that, you know, that uh, the, the lives of these characters in rural Mindanao is they're kind of perpetuating a static, oriental culture that just you know has been the same since time immemorial and is incapable of change or growth and so to the extent that it does change or could change in the in the future uh then it would cease to be oriental because it would it would just be an example of the further encroachment of uh, you know western modernity 
And so basically here to locate an oriental essence, the film has to kind of go out into the backwoods and find, you know, our contemporary ancestors basically. Uh, and so I'll show you a clip from the film. And this is a, a scene from almost towards the end of the film. And this is like, I think the first real indication that the story is set in the 20 teens because uh, the uh, patriarch of the Muslim family is negotiating with an Islamic state commander to, um, to buy an automatic rifle. And so that actually situates the film in a, a very contemporary context, if, if you call the, uh, you know, the armed struggle in Mindanao where the separatists were fighting against the government. And so this is like the first allusion to something really contemporary in the film, uh, but in, in a way it just kind of reinforces the kind of, uh, or sort of it makes the case that uh, implicitly that the, uh, the problems in Mindanao with the, the armed separatists could be understood as the perpetuation of these static oriental cultures that uh, you know are just perpetuating uh, an older form of existence that is incompatible with modernity. So I will share my sound again. I will watch the clip. Okay. So uh, as, as you can see in this clip, uh, there's you know an emphasis on uh, on bartering and kind of associating the characters with uh, you know a kind of older uh, mode of exchange that uh, that uh, predates uh, modernity and uh, also you know the the fact that they're kind of um, swearing a, a, a an allegiance to the Islamic State, not based on, you know, religious extremism, but just kind of based on, you know, that this is like the, the local culture. So there's a kind of uh, real uh, emphasis on the film on kind of the backwardness or the uh, the lack of modernity in this uh, in this uh, area of uh, Mindanao. Oops, starting again. So uh, as, I, as I said, uh, the festival is basically uh, a space. Uh, so it's not just for films, it's for the audiences to basically perform their identities. Uh, for uh, a public audience. And the festival provides a kind of a number of venues for this. Uh, one is like Q and A sessions after the film. Uh, another is panel discussions where, uh, you know, they bring in uh, people in the industry uh, to, you know, talk about uh, particular issues. Uh, there was, I, I attended a panel in 2017 on, on subject of cultural appropriation uh, where they had, uh, you know, different Canadian screenwriters kind of come in and talk about uh, their experiences writing for Canadian television. And then, of course, on social media, so Facebook and Twitter and things like that. These are all spaces where um, different audience members can perform uh, their identities for uh, the public. And uh, so what, what I noticed was that um, very often uh, racially marked Asian spectators tended to emphasize their unique ability to empathize with the, uh, the stories being represented on the screen. Um, so during the uh, at the at the opening night screening of uh, Dear Etranger after the uh, after the film was over, uh, when you know, one of the first questions from the audience was uh, a young man saying that the the lead character uh, reminded him of his his father because he was so kind of um, you know emotionally uh, repressed and asked the director uh, Mishima Yukiko whether she you know uh, based uh, the character at all on her father and so there was this attempt to kind of uh, you know, try, try to establish a kind of bond as, you know, between the audience member and the director as, you know, Asian subjects who had this kind of common experience of an emotionally repressed father. And if you didn't have that, then you really didn't have, you know, an Asian upbringing. So, you know, if your father gave you a hug, then, you know, you, you're not Asian, basically. Um, and, but of course, you know, as I said, it's a community event, but it's not just 
Asians who are, or, uh, you know, ethnic Asians or racially marked Asian spectators who are turning up for the screenings. Uh, also, a lot of white people like to, to go to these uh, screenings. And what I found with Asian spectators was that there was this attempt to kind of um, imaginatively project themselves into an Oriental culture through an act of sympathetic understanding. Uh, so they were, which often shaded into a kind of liberal masochism. Uh, so uh, one of the films that I, I saw in 2017 was a documentary by Jap uh, called uh, A Whale of the Tale. It's about the whaling industry in the Japanese city of Taiji. Uh, the director is a Japanese woman who has lived in New York for many years. And basically the film was conceived as a response to another documentary called The Cove that was very critical of the whaling industry. And this was an attempt, uh, this film was basically an attempt to explain, um, you know, the position of the Japanese fishermen to uh, a non-Japanese audience that, do that doesn't have this kind of cultural background. And um, one of the things that uh, is a kind of motif in the film is the kind of obnoxious behavior of Western animal rights activists who don't understand Japanese culture. And so in the, the Q&A, uh, a lot of the, the, the Q&A was not really questions, but just you know white people trying to convince the director that they were not one of those white people that they were one of the good ones. And so there was this guy who went on this like really like melodramatic rant about, you know, uh, how how obnoxious these uh, animal rights activists were and how hypocritical it was of Westerners to criticize anything Japan does after hunting the American buffalo to extinction and uh, the decimation of indigenous cultures. And it was uh, really uh, quite a spectacle to see uh, because it had, you know, there, there was, you know, it's a Q and A, but there was, there was no question there. It was just like, just, he was just so desperate. Like, I'm not the, I'm not a bad white person. It was like basically the, the kind of the subtext of that, like, you know, after watching this film, I understand, you know, the, the position of the, the Japanese uh, fishermen because I've been able through this documentary to kind of uh, project myself into their, uh, their point of view. So, uh, some really, so if you go to the festival, you know, you're going to, you're going to hear some interesting comments from white people. Uh, and one of the things that's noteworthy about the festival uh, compared to, you know, even a very large festival like TIFF, uh, you know, they have screenings at different venues, but all of those venues are walkable from one another. This is not the case with real Asian. So, uh, real Asian, they have, uh, some screenings that are downtown in these kind of very, uh, prestigious, uh, settings, including the TIFF Bell Lightbox but also, you know, the Isabel Bader Center of Boring Arts, uh, Innes Town Hall at the University of Toronto. And then they have other screenings way, way out in the suburbs in venues like the um, Japanese Canadian Cultural Center, uh, which is like way up in North York and is not really accessible by public transit. And there's this almost kind of this like stark divide between uh, films that are kind of aimed at a primarily um, Asian diasporic audience, uh, for example, uh, Teichi Battle of Supreme High, which was shown at the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center. And then uh, films like um, Women of the Weeping River, which was shown at, um, the, uh, at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. And these kind of uh, more, so it, it was kind of this like split. It was almost like two festivals basically that had very little um, communication between them. Because if you just went to, you know, I mean, if you went to the downtown, if you just went to the downtown screenings, you had a completely different experience. And if you had gone to, uh, the screenings in the in the suburbs, and uh, so I, I think that was, you know, there was there was a certain kind of conscious uh, intent there in terms of figuring out 
which films would play well to each audience. And so the, the films that were screened in the suburbs tend to be much more commercial, tend to be much more accessible. The films screened downtown tended to be art films like Women in the River, or they tend to be documentaries uh, like A Whale of a Tale. And so uh, basically, uh, you know, you had kind of one festival for, you know, ins- like, you know, quote unquote insiders, like, re- like you know, to name the to cite the name of the festival, Real Asians. And then you had another festival basically for um, the general public downtown that was, um, you know, basically for, you know, outsiders who wanted to project themselves into uh, Asian, into an alien culture. And so um, it, it was, so in a way, even though you had these different groups performing their public or performing their uh, identities for the public, they didn't really need each other as an audience. They just need, so if you had, you know, a, a predominantly ethnic Asian audience, they were just kind of performing for themselves Asianness, and then the white audience that was, proje- uh, you know, trying to imagine themselves or project themselves into this alien culture, they were basically projected. They were, I mean, of course, in the example of the of the the man who gave the interesting comment at the Q and A, he was uh, basically performing. You know, I mean, so they brought out the, the Japanese uh, filmmakers so that you know uh, the man could unload his liberal guilt on her uh so he was but i so i mean it was kind of a, an interesting um but so basically he was kind of performing it for the director but also for the other white people that you know he wanted to kind of you know you know in a way that like you know i guess we would call it virtue signaling today i don't know if that term had kind of taken root in uh, 2017 i guess it did but yeah so that's basically what was going on was that you know asian sign- asian spectators could kind of uh, you know, talk about, you know, how Asian they were because their fathers were emotionally repressed and white sectors could talk about, you know, could kind of uh, say that, you know, yeah, I'm not a bad white person. I, I understand Asian culture. So just to kind of uh, quickly wrap up. Uh, so the continued existence of real Asian really kind of depend, uh, depends on maintaining the stark division of Occident and Orient because if there wasn't a division between Occident and Orient, then you wouldn't really have an Asian festival, right? You need, you know, you need something, you know, Asia needs to be kind of kept distinct from, uh, from the West in order for the festival to have any real justification. And uh, in that sense, you can situate the festival within this broader discourse of multiculturalism, which as uh, Ong Yen points out, uh, basically serves to keep Western culture white by uh, preventing non-white, non-European elements from fully entering and therefore contaminating the center of white Western culture. And uh, in that sense, uh, the festival actually perpetuates the marginalization of Canadians of Asian heritage because the implication of the festival's discourse is that to the extent that um, one is Asian, one is proportionately not Canadian and not Western. And uh, and of course, the, the, the and uh, and you see this in the uh, festival, in the participant behavior that the festival solicits, that the festival basically calls on um, racially marked Asian spectators and also white spectators to kind of perform their identity in, uh, in a public space uh, or online. And so that even at the festival, even at the uh, screenings where, you know, they were kind of side by side, or there was a kind of a mix of uh, racially marked Asian spectators and white spectators, uh, the, the discourse of the festival and the way that people perform their identities actually seem to kind of move Occident and Orient, the, the, the boundary kind of seem to get stronger uh, rather than dissolving. Uh, 